is Our American Story, and it's time for our Rule of Law series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this story, one that may not seem like a story on the Rule of Law, but is. Here's Dave Grohl, the frontman of the Foo Fighters, and earlier, a pretty unknown drummer who joined a pretty unknown band called Nirvana. When I joined the band, they had this demo that sounded amazing. It sounded huge, and it sounded different than the things that they had done before. And everyone talked about Butch, 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 Butch. Butch Vig, who owns Smart Studios, a recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, where Nirvana recorded the demo for their breakout album, Nevermind. Bands like Death Cab for Cutie and Beck did some stuff here. Freddy Johnson did a lot of stuff here. And a lot. Uh, the list is pretty extensive. If you go online, you'll see this, this huge list. You're listening to a guy named Phil Parhamovich, and he's saying here because he and I were literally there talking inside the now defunct Smart Studios. And that list he mentioned of who's also recorded here. Includes the Smashing Pumpkins, their debut and breakout album Gish was done here, as was Fall Out Boys, and Soul Asylum, Everclear, Jimmy World, and Tegan and Sarah are also on that list. But when Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana recorded here, I think it was pretty basic. It was just a pretty basic building. I think it was built in the late 1800s as a Jewish grocery store at the time. When Butch Vig first came in here, I imagine it was kind of still, you know, in some state like that. So this was the room where, you know, Kurt Cobain and all those guys did their thing. Billy Corgan with the Smashing Pumpkins, and that's where Butch would have sat and recorded them. They were doing a lot here, starting to kind of create that grunge sound, and Butch was really, really that guy. A guy from Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, shaping the 90s iconic grunge sound that's most identified with a city 1,925 miles away, Seattle. How did that happen? Somehow, you know, I think when you're in the scene, you just pay attention to the albums that you like, how they sound. They probably liked what was coming out of the studio and sought him out. Conveniently, Butch Vig didn't have to seek out a studio when he recorded himself. Well, he'd started Garbage here. He started his band Garbage, and they were doing really well. They moved to L.A., like all big bands do. Now, strangely enough, this story isn't about Butch Vig or about any of these famous people who were in this totally nondescript studio that doesn't have a single solitary landmark or sign marking all the fame that was created here. And not a zip. And why are we talking to this Phil guy, by the way? He's not famous. At least not yet. So, uh, I the weird thing is, I had seen it. I, I'd known about it. The studio's legendary. I knew about Smart Studios. And I kept like trying to find it. And I, I had been passing it on the road a lot without knowing what it was. Because it's this ugly, derelict building. You know, it's like the windows are all bricked up. It looks like... 
this crack house or abandoned place, you know. And I didn't really realize it was that. And finally, someone, I think, pointed out, no, that was Smart Studios right there. I was like, huh. And so the next time I was driving by, I had had money saved up. I had around a hundred grand or so. And I was trying to find a house. And Phil, who's a musician, thought to himself, why not live in a famous recording studio? And he was going to until the police pulled him over for a seatbelt violation. So he threw me in the back of the car and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart and found my cash and uh, got extremely excited. At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, you know, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash. So I'm thinking, oh wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? And what's going on here? This is the story of Phil Parhamovich. Born and raised in the Cleveland area. Played football, really got into art and music. Started recording music. Kind of making fake albums with my brothers. Making the album art. And we'd get up on the bed and do these fake concerts and stuff. And, uh... Really was just a sports kid, an art kid, and somehow was like, had the perfect combination of both. It was a mix that some people couldn't quite understand. I started going to school for, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to do like Marvel comics. When I was a kid, I had established maybe 200 superheroes, and we would laminate them with scotch tape and cut them out and play with them. It was our toys, you know? Did you not have much money growing up? Yeah, we were poor. My parents were divorced after about sixth grade. My mom wasn't home very much. She worked and then she went out after work and uh, I raised my sister pretty much alone. And whatever was in the fridge, we had, I think we had a box of frozen pork chops that we ate off of for a while and, and uh, it was pretty tough. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. A childhood that's definitely not ideal, but also one that can definitely inspire creativity like Phil's. You almost have to to get by. Creatively finding ways to feed yourself and have something to play with. So I was going to art school in Nova Scotia at the time and my father became an accountant and he was doing the taxes for the video director of the Browns and they needed an intern. They just hired Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach and they needed an intern because they were going to do their own TV show in-house. They wanted somebody with some art school experience or at least some experience with doing art and graphics. Each segment had a graphic going into it and they wanted somebody who would kind of have an idea of how to do that and so they hired me to kind of take the TV show responsibility and they hired another guy to do more of the football stuff and it turned out I ended up knowing more about football than anybody in the department. So I did all the football stuff, shooting practices and editing the tape. And, but I also did the TV show and everything from interviewing the players to building the sets to editing the segments together and all that. So I was totally into it. It was a cool job, except it was the schedule was such a grind. I mean, there was one day a week we didn't sleep. 
we just worked right into the next day and Saturdays and Sundays we worked. So from just before the start of training camp until past the end of the season, a couple of weeks, there was no days off. And one day a week you didn't sleep. The other days a week we'd work until about one in the morning, get up and start working again about seven. So it was a grind. I worked there for two years. And after those two years, I, uh, I had had enough and I, I was really getting more into music. And at that point, I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I had gone to school with a dude who was in a band who was becoming very successful in Minneapolis. And that scene was really blowing up there, Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du. And my friend's band, The Hangups, was right in the midst of all that stuff and knew all those guys and was playing shows with them. So I quit and moved out to Minneapolis and started pursuing music and then I would work in the spring in NFL Europe so I'd spend about four or five months in NFL Europe making money and then coming back and launching into my music stuff. Phil also searched for his dream country house. He'd buy one, fix it up, conclude that it wasn't his dream house and sell it. This is how he accidentally saved up the $100,000 cash that he didn't keep in a bank but with him and why the police were able to take it from him. I'm not really that into our system of how we do things. I didn't see why a CEO should be making a bunch of money off my money when I could hide it just as well. And when we come back, we continue with our Rule of Law series and what happened to those hard-earned dollars in Phil Parhamovich's car. The cops were interested in that $92,000, and they thought they had every right to take it. And when we come back, more of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. Visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. And make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you the top five stories of the week. We can either listen to them or read the transcription. Ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know. And this one, well, this is just as good as it gets. We return to musician Phil Parhamovich's story of trying to buy the legendary Smart Studios where Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, and so many others recorded, and how Phil's preference to keep his cash with him was treated like a crime. worked out a contract, sent it to him. He signed it, okayed it. I gave him the earnest money. And I think in a couple days, two or three days, I left on tour. Here I had all of my money in this box, and it was a lot of money. And the apartment I lived in, they had the boiler room for the whole building in my unit, and they would just allow themselves in. 
whenever they wanted. Just like no knocking, no ringing the doorbell, just like, hello, we're here to service the boiler. So I'm getting ready to leave on this little tour. I'm like, well, here I've got this studio under contract. So like, I'm super excited about that. My life is just like, woo. And all of my money is not really being able to be hid very well. And like, well, I could bring it in speaker. I'll have it with me on stage. So I leave on this trip and I'm starting out in this blizzard, this horrible blizzard. And I was going like 20 miles an hour for six hours through Iowa. Like I was, wasn't moving at all. And I finally stopped and I stopped on the, the side of the road by a hotel, slept there for a few hours and I got back up in the morning. I missed my first show in Denver because I just couldn't make it that far. And I was driving on to the next show in Wyoming and I passed this police officer on the right-hand side of the road. I could tell he had just stopped someone that said canine unit on his car. And uh, I know a little bit how they are. Like, they like to search people whenever they can, but I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going under the speed limit in the slow lane behind a truck at that time. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom really bad, so I was, like, really looking for that next stop. There were high winds on the highway. I'm driving along, and that cop races up alongside of me and is just studying me for a long time. At that point, I kind of felt like prey. Finally, pulls me over. He comes up and immediately says, could you please come back into my car? I'd like to ask you a bunch of questions. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I don't see, see why not. You know, he said he was stopping me for, for my seatbelt. He saw I didn't have my seatbelt on. I was like, well, this is kind of strange. I just don't, don't have my seatbelt on. This guy is obviously super aggressive. We go back into his car. So he starts asking me all these questions. Well, where are you from? Where are you going? You know, what, what are you doing? What band is it? Where are you playing? So I'm just answering these questions. You know, they're simple questions. And to each question, he's opposing them. He's like, well, that, that can't be true. How can that be true? And he's like manipulating every question into this kind of doubting thing, you know. And after a while, it started to get just confusing and kind of strange. And it just seemed like a real head game was happening. So finally he says, well, I want to search your car with, with my dog. And uh, I was like, well, that's fine. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I don't, I don't do drugs. And so I was like, that, that's fine. So he brings his dog up, and he had three tennis balls in his car door. He grabs one of them, puts it in his hand under his sleeve. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And he walks up to my car, and this dog is, is just a dumb dog. It's, it's really, like, not interested in anything. And uh, the dog is just kind of sitting there staring at this officer. And finally, the officer is, like, trying to get the dog interested in the car. He's doing whatever he can to get the dog interested. And the dog has no interest in it. Taking the dog, bringing his nose right up against the door and stuff, the dog's not doing anything. And finally, he takes this, this ball and starts to, like, jerk this ball up in the air get this dog to play with the ball so the dog starts to jump and then he immediately wastes no time goes to the other side of the car and makes the dog jump again on the other side it was clear that he at this point wanted to get on videotape from his car the dog jumping around my car so he comes back he's like well my dog reacted to your car like this is escalating this is getting worse and worse and worse and I'm like I, you know how did a seatbelt turn into all of a sudden you're searching my car you're faking it with this ball now I'm getting thrown into the back of your car what's going on here it got really scary at that point I felt like completely no power to do anything 
And he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart, just like ripping things, you know. Finally, he started to take apart all of my music stuff and found my cash, got extremely excited, got like hyperventilating excited, and came back and was like, well, I found this cash and blah, 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 and like, whose is it? At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, weapons, blah, 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 multiple times. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? It's implied to me that it was illegal to carry cash. He grouped it right in with the drugs and weapons. The rule of implication over the rule of law, the actual law. It made it seem like this could have been illegal. I didn't really know. And really all I started thinking about was my daughter and being able to see her when I get done with this tour. And she means the world to me, you know? And like any time without her, I was like, oh my God, am I gonna be thrown in jail for carrying cash? And I just wanted to get back to her at this point. So I said, well, the speakers aren't mine. And I lied. Then all these other policemen showed up, I think about three or four cars worth, and they were like high-fiving and stuff about the money and laughing and joking. I honestly felt like I was in a dream, and I like more than once pinched myself. I was like, God, if this is a dream, like please wake up, like what is going on? And here I'm watching like my life savings being taken, you know, stuff that I've worked so hard for. So anyways, the cops are like done with the search and they didn't find anything. And it was so funny. They were like trying to take the spare tire off the spare and like jumping up and down on it. And, you know, like they had ripped everything apart. They thought so for sure they were going to find something in my car. So they didn't. And finally this uh, detective came up, this plainclothes detective. And he says, well, if you'd like to go, you know, you can sign this waiver, waiving your rights to this whatever we found and then you could just go the waiver said that the money would be given as a gift to the state of wyoming and specifically to their division fighting drugs first who gives money to the government and second why the drug division their stop of phil had nothing to do with drugs he didn't have a single drug on him and he just made it sound like really simple. And I was like, well, so what if I don't sign the waiver? And he didn't make that sound so simple. He wouldn't really tell me. And I kept asking him over and over, maybe five, six times, what happens if I don't sign it? And uh, he wouldn't say. He, he had to say something, right? I mean, at first he wouldn't. He just kind of like, well, it'll be bad. It'll be bad. You know, and I was like, well, what exactly will happen if I don't sign it? You know, he's like, well... He kept trying to avoid it, and then finally he's like, well, you know, we're going to go through your phone, we're going to go through everything, even more in your car. You're going to be here for a long time, probably going to spend some time in jail. He wouldn't tell me, like, why am I going to be here for a long time? I was like, well, why would I be here for a long time? You've already gone through my car. What would happen? He's like, well, we got to go back to the court. We're going to have to get a, some kind of other thing to make sure we could, we could search even deeper or whatever. I, it was really unclear, and he made it sound bad. It's hard to in that situation. I was really scared. I was nervous. I had to go to the bathroom really bad for probably over four hours at that point. And that's bad, you know? It's just, it, I was not in a good state. 
I was tired from not much sleep the morning before. And just from driving for two days, you get kind of, it's hard to focus. And a couple times, I was like, so, if I sign this, I can just go. And he's like, yeah. And honestly, I just, all I thought about was her. If I'm thrown in jail for a month, you know, and people are, are talking and saying bad things about me, like, it's going to affect her. And I was like, okay, I guess it's worth it, you know, if I can just go. The 92 grand, I'll just let go and make a fight for it in the future. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Phil Parhamovich's story. A musician, cash and his speaker seized by the cops, signs away his rights to the money unwillingly, under duress. You'll find out the rest of the story after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of musician Phil Parhamovich's story of the police pressuring him to gift his money to them, despite not charging him with a crime. The last few years, you may have heard of a controversial police practice called civil asset forfeiture. Like most things in life, it started out with good intentions, allowing police to seize the assets of, say, drug kingpins, whom they suspect are using those assets to commit crimes. But today, it's gotten so out of hand that a grandma in Illinois had her car taken from her because her grandson borrowed it, was dealing drugs in it, and she didn't have a clue. When she went to the police with her true story, it was too late. They had already sold their car and profited from the sale before her grandson even appeared before a judge and justice was served. Grandma couldn't get to work and injustice was served to her. In over a single decade, the Drug Enforcement Agency has seized over $3.2 billion in private property from individuals that they never even charged with a crime. Think about that. You can have your property taken from you without ever being charged with anything. There now is a movement afoot to ban civil asset forfeiture and at a minimum have it so that you have to be charged with a crime before your property can be seized. And yet, these government officials can be sneaky and creative creatures to get around this whole ugly debate. They've resorted to taking a whole other path, a side road, to the same goal. They're trying to stop civil forfeiture. The governor keeps vetoing certain things and they allowing to have this waiver where they could kind of get around it by saying, Okay, well, you weren't convicted of anything, but now you're agreeing to gift the state of Wyoming whatever it is we're seizing. It's just manipulation, you know, it's just, it's thievery. Whether you're doing with the fine print or whatever, it's the same thing. I didn't go to any of the shows. (laughs) I was, I just lost my life's savings. I was completely despondent, you know, I was just beside myself. I drove away in a state of like, not knowing what had just had happened. I spent the next two hours probably just collecting myself, honestly, 
trying to like figure out what do I do here. And so I stopped at a McDonald's, got on the Wi-Fi with my laptop and just started to research. I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was at this point, you know. Now I learned about it. I started to look for attorneys right off the bat. And so I found the Institute for Justice and Dan Alban. His name had come up in a few of the, the cases. And I was already late at night, so I couldn't call at that point. First thing in the morning, I called up. I asked to speak to him. He answered the phone. And I told him what had happened. And he says, okay, that's very interesting. We want to help you if we can. And from that point on, they didn't formally represent me but they helped me every step of the way. And they had to vet me. They really had to look deeply into who I was and was my story true. And they came out here and checked everything out. They went through my phone, they went through my wallet, they went through everything. It was very intense. Right away we started to send letters to the state of Wyoming, requesting the money back, claiming that it was mine. And the state of Wyoming just kind of dragged their feet they weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to give anything back. And yet, Phil didn't have the luxury of dragging his feet with his pending purchase of smart studios and a home. I contacted the person who I made the contract with because we were set to close and all that. Everything was going to go forward. And I, and I told him what happened. And he said, okay, well, why don't I give you a nine-month lease? We'll see where your court case is at the end of the the nine months, and that's happening right now. We're at that kind of end point. We got some dates that we have to get my bank financing papers to him and stuff. But uh, so that was that was very cool of him. And they've basically said to look. I mean, obviously we like the guy. We're trying to help him out here, but ultimately, if you can't put this money together, we will, you know, sell it to someone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the reality of of real estate he's got property he needs to sell and i mean one of the unfortunate things is because of this i don't think a lot of people knew this place was for sale and now that this is all starting to come out a lot of people do and they're contacting me they're like hey i wanted to buy a place hey i wanted to buy buy that place so we'll see what happens here um i could lose it i could very easily it's to me it's hanging in the balance it's 50 50 But Phil did have one arrow in his quiver that the state of Wyoming didn't know about. They had no idea that I had representation at that time. They thought that he was just some poor Yahoo out there that they could take advantage of. And this wasn't just any old representation. The Institute for Justice has 44 attorneys who work full-time fighting for the liberties of Americans who don't have the resources to fight for themselves when they're unjustly targeted by their government. These guys have litigated five cases before the Supreme Court and won four of them. Wyoming's government didn't know this when they violated the rule of law again. They had had a hearing uh, in July without letting me know about it. And we had already corresponded about eight times back and forth. You know, they knew everything. They had my addresses, they had my phone number, they had my emails, they had everything. And there was no attempt to contact me. So they had this hearing without me, decided since I didn't show up to forfeit my money, and I I would have been there for sure. And so the case was supposedly closed. 
this hearing that we asked for was just to reopen it, saying that, hey, we've been in good contact. Uh, you should have been able to notify me, so you need to reopen this case. And we got out there, and it turned out that the judge was on a leave of absence. His wife was ill. So there was a retired judge, military judge, an older guy, 70-some years old, I think. And he showed up there, and in the morning of the court hearing, all of a sudden, one of the senators of Wyoming was trying to call me, one of the House of Representatives was trying to call me. And this sudden rush of interest wasn't accidental. The Institute for Justice worked with the publication Vox to have a long expose on this saga come out the very morning of the hearing. The article had dropped. It was like, boom, oh my God. There's reporters there and everything. And right before that hearing, because of this article and all this stuff blowing up, I believe, the judge pulled everyone to the side and said, hey, let's, let's just get this done. Let's not even worry about why the hearing didn't happen in the first place and not, you know, let's just get this done. We, we want no part of this now. And I think the attorney general in Wyoming, I believe he wanted it to just go away. It then took about three weeks for Phil's life savings to arrive back to him just before he and I met and hopefully in time to be able to make Smart Studios his permanent home. Hopefully he still is patient, you know, because I just got the check a few days ago. The bank is going to take a little bit to look at things. And, you know, I've had expenses in this last point of time, too, which I have to have to pay off now. So it's it'll be close. Phil's been busy in what's for now his studio working away on his other dream. I've been really into electronic music. I started going to Burning Man, I think, seven years ago and really getting into some artists out there. At first, I didn't like it at all. It was kind of like, what is this? You know, I've been this guitar, old school, like old blues, like the oldest Ross blues, fife and drum tradition, which is like the start of blues, really. And I think after like hearing my John Lee Hooker albums 20,000 times and Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath, I just, you get tired of that, you know? And I really started to get into electronic music. And four years ago, I started producing it on my own, but I wasn't up to the state I wanted it at yet. And finally, this past year, I started to produce stuff that I felt like was on par with what I was hearing and where I felt like, okay, now I have a voice. A voice known as Star Monster. A different voice, but the same voice that is grateful to the Institute for Justice and especially their donors who could be spending their money on fine meals and yachts and instead to freely give of themselves to help hundreds of people like Phil that they've never met. It's just astounded me. It it really has. All the people from the Institute for Justice, the people that wrote me on Facebook, to show their support and started a GoFundMe for me. Like people are offering like, hey, I'll buy it and you can pay me back. Or like, it's just, it really restored my faith in humanity. When things like what had happened to me happen, it, it really makes you question the world you live in and just, God, you know, what, what am I living in? And, and it just makes you feel horrible. But I can't believe how many loving, supportive people there are out there. It, it really blows me away. And great job on that, as always, Alex. 
And what a story. And what a story about the rule of law. And by the way, we always say we support the vast majority of our law enforcement officials who do a fine and an honorable job. But we've always got to watch out for government power, folks. Always. That's what the Constitution was about. And look what happens in a situation like this. The leverage that law enforcement has and the way a rule can be used to raise revenue. And this is when we always worry, folks, when the law enforcement acts like a revenue agent. They're not. It should be about right and wrong and protecting the country. And what a job that the Institute for Justice does each and every day out there defending an essential right in this country, our property rights. Bill Parhamovich's story, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories.